If you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Hebrews, the second chapter of Hebrews, chapter 2. Looking at it as we're going to continue our series, Jesus is Better. That seems very boastful, doesn't it? seems very proud and almost even arrogant to say Jesus is better. I mean, we may feel it because, hey, we're church people. We're Christians. So, yeah, we're going to hoorah, rah, rah, Jesus is better. We, we understand that. That's why we sing. That's why we give. That's why we do the things we do. That's why we show up to church. That's why we give faithfully and, and serve in the ways that we do. We believe Jesus is better. But it does seem kind of uh, proud for us to say that. But yet the Bible makes no bones about it. That statement is absolutely true. Jesus is far superior, more excellent. He's the eternal one. When you look at God, you see Jesus. And when you see Jesus, you look at God. Because they are one and the same. And so if God is the greatest entity, greatest person, greatest revelation ever, there's nothing better than Him. And this is what we have come to know when it comes to talking about Jesus. But the world will probably push back on that message and may ask this simple, scary three-letter word. Why? You say Jesus is better. Why? Is it because you're American? You just grew up that way? Is it because you grew up in a a culturally Christian home and, and that's just all you've ever been taught? Is it because you're Baptist and you always went to a Baptist church? Is it because it seems to be rooted in Western civilization and, and, and the, a lot of the principles that we have in, in our institutions go back to this? So it's just cultural. What is the reason? Is it because maybe you heard it, someone say that once? Because maybe a family member said that? What is it grounded in? Why? Why is Jesus better? And the writer of Hebrews inspired by the Lord to pen this letter to a people who were living in uncertain times, facing suffering for their life of faith in Jesus, is giving these reasons why. That it's not merely a a stated opinion, not merely a cultural identity, not merely just a happy, happy, joy, joy, warm, warm, fuzzy feeling. It is grounded in this is what God has made known from the beginning, that He being the greatest revelation of all, there is no one higher than Him, no one more powerful than Him. He is pointing us to Jesus and saying, look at Him, and when you see Him, you see Me. And when you see Me, you see Him. This is why it's pointing us to that. But, but, it is amazing how something so good so great, so giving, someone who has done so much for us, our attention can be like, meh. Ooh, look, a squirrel. We can be so caught off guard and just drifting and drifting and drifting. And our world is filled with such distractions that it's easy to drift. It's, it's easy to drift away from the things that, other than Jesus that we know are important. We tell people it's so important not to text and drive, and yet it's one of the easiest things that we find ourselves doing. I'll I'll just do this one time. This time it's more more important. These little distractions. And that's just one given thing. But let's look at what Hebrews presents to us 
as a warning that, that yes, Jesus is better, He is good, but this is why you must pay attention. Because of the potential for drift, for distraction, for neglect. So stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. If you're following along in one of the copies in your pews, it's on page 1061. It'll also be on the screen behind me. And if you don't have a Bible that is readable to you, um, please consider that Bible in the pew in front of you, our gift to from us to you, uh, not just to use in this moment, but to keep. It, it's yours. Chapter 2, this is the letter to the Hebrews. It says, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginnings when it was spoken of by the Lord. And it was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles, and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to His will. For He is not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. But someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him? Or the Son of Man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time, and you crowned him with glory and honor, and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower the angels for a short time so that by God's grace He might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation Perfect through sufferings. Let us pray. Lord God, today we've read from your word. It is a gift of your grace given to men and women so they may know you the greatest of all. They may be drawn near to you because of your kindness that leads them to repentance. They may hear the good news that, that results in, in a faith yielding to salvation. They may experience the glory of knowing the Holy One. And so, Lord, let us not take this word for granted. Help us to hear it so that it would produce faith, because faith comes by hearing. Help us to guard it and protect it, to treasure it, because it comes from You. And in this moment where it would be so easy to be distracted by a plethora of distractions, help our hearts and minds be fixed on You. To not neglect so great a gift as your salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
So, sometimes when we read the Bible, we can say, uh, hello, i got a question. Um, it's easy to have those. And I want to tell you this, it's not wrong to have those. It's okay to ask God a question. It's okay to say, I, God, I need clarification. Not that I'm saying I'm over you or I have an authority. I just, I know you love me and, and you've given this to me and I just, I want to know what it means, what it says and, and why it applies and, and how I am meant to trust this. What am I going to do about it? Those are great questions. We need to be asking what the Bible says and, and reading it for ourselves. We need to look and see what it means and, and have faithful leaders to teach us. We need to see how it applies to the significant areas of our life. And we need to be willing to place our faith and listen and trust what God is saying. Now, as I said before, the book of Hebrews is written is a letter written to a people around what we believe is the 60s A.D., by this second generation Christian, uh, he had heard the message of Jesus and is passing it on. And he's writing to the Hebrews. Some people believe this is Hebrew people in general. Some people believe maybe it's a priest, uh, a former priest writing priest and saying, don't go back to the priesthood and go back to this old way of sacrifice that Jesus is far greater in who he is and what he has accomplished and that everything else that that was has now been surpassed. It was insufficient. It wasn't wrong. It was just insufficient and incomplete without Jesus. And so he's, he's telling them why Jesus is greater, that, that he's greater in his title and the name that God has given him. He's greater than any other supernatural entity because he is the creator. And he's greater in what he does. But nevertheless, because he's writing to a people that are living in uncertainty, he's telling them that if you are not careful, it is so easy to drift. It is so easy to be kept moving away from Jesus. To fall into this pattern. And so the Bible, the book of Hebrews, it's, it's telling us about evaluating the, the nature of God. It's telling us about exhortation and, and what it means to, to be challenged by the Bible, to be careful with what we do with God's Word. It's a book for examination, looking at our lives and, and why I should trust Jesus and what He has done. It's a book of expectation telling us what is to come and giving this this picture of this greater, now awesome environment that we've been brought into. And it's a book of exaltation. It tells us about the glory that belongs to Jesus. But it is very interesting in the very first phrases of chapter 2. Now, i got to be careful here. Remember that this is a letter, and when we open the Bible, we can see those big numbers and little numbers. The Bible was not written in that way. Those were added in the Middle Ages for us to be able to open and find where the text is that we're studying on that day. Before, it was just written in sentences and paragraphs. Just as you find it, the numbers were inserted later. So the numbers are not holy in themselves because they're not original to the text. But in this very first statement, this new paragraph, after talking about the awesome title and position that Jesus holds, it tells us, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. You see, the Bible gives us this spoken reality about Jesus. Just in the past few paragraphs, these are a few applications to Jesus we've been given. 
He is the inheritor of all things. Nothing else is parsed out and given to anyone else. It wasn't like they gave Jesus the biggest portion and then they said, all right, you got all these other many deities and they get a part of it. No, he inherits it all. He owns it all. He is the possessor of it all. And another thing, he is the creator of it all. That it, it is made by him. He is the sustainer of all. That by his powerful world, word, all these things actually keep going. It's not that, that Jesus said, all right, poof, I made it, now I'm out. No, he's, he's holding everything together. Think about it. The very cellular composition of your body, the very fact that you're breathing in and out, is because Jesus, by his word, says, I will it. By my grace, I will that that keep happening. That's so profound. The world spins because Jesus spoke it and speaks it. He is the radiance of the Almighty. At the very image expressed by God is found in Him. He is the mediator of all who believe that purified our sins by His blood. He is the majesty that sits down at the right hand. He is the one who is superior above all. You see, it's making this case because if we miss this about Jesus, or if we neglect it and, and don't really focus in on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus says and how this accomplishes such a great gift for us, if we don't know that Jesus is better, this is what happens. We have a weak Jesus. We do. We end up having a weak Jesus or a weak valuation of Jesus. That He's not worth our time. That He's not worth our obedience. And when we have a weak Jesus, these are just some things that happen. We have a weak view of God. If we have a weak view of Jesus, let's just point it out. When you look at Jesus, you're seeing God. And when you're seeing God, you're seeing Jesus. If we have a weak Jesus, we have a weak God. If we have a weak Jesus, we have a weak Word. This matters less if we have a weak Jesus. If he isn't who he says he is, if, if we're not willing to pay attention, this doesn't matter that much. Because we have a weak Jesus. Why would I want to hear a weak person's word? And if we have a weak person's word, then we have a weak gospel. That's not life changing. That's just a point of view. That's just your opinion, bro. Because we have a weak Jesus. Why would it be a strong gospel? If we have a weak Jesus, we have a weak salvation. Because if the gospel message that helps us hear faith and be gifted faith is weak, then the salvation it yields, it ain't going to be strong. It's not going to be impactful. It's not going to be transformative. If we have a weak salvation, our view of grace is weak. Well, okay, God forgives, but I guess part of it is me working out my salvation. That we begin works-based and trying to build up our values on ourselves because we don't see what grace has fully accomplished for us because I have a weak view of Jesus. Of course His grace is weak. If I have a weak view of Jesus, I have a weak fellowship. I mean, this is, this is where the hard rubber meets the road. If I don't believe Jesus is who He is, then this whole fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, they don't really matter. It's not a really big deal that I know them or that they know me. Because I have a weak Jesus. Why would I need a strong fellowship with Jesus believers? If I have a weak Jesus, I have a weak obedience. It doesn't really matter if I do the things 
that Jesus told me to do. And it doesn't matter if I don't do the things that Jesus told me not to do. Because once again, those are just weak value things from a weak Jesus. If I have a weak Jesus, I have a weak discipleship. There's no need for me really to pour into this and grow. There's no need for me to memorize this. There's no need for me to read this and to be focused in it daily. Because I already said if I have a weak Jesus, His words don't matter. And if His words don't matter, why should I devote a part of my life to discipline and knowing them? If I have a weak Jesus, then the mission is weak. Jesus doesn't really do anything. He can't really change people. So why would I go out there to share what I hear out here? Because this is a weak message. So if it's a weak message and there needs to be strong change that needs to happen out there, Jesus probably won't cut it. You see the problem? This is what happens with a weak Jesus. And, and I'm trying not to get into a legalistic view to where that, you know, you gotta build up your own morality and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps or anything like that. But I will tell you, the Bible presents the potential after hearing the greatest news of all and meeting the greatest person of all and having the greatest revelation of all that you and I can still drift away and it produces terrible results in our life. It produces terrible results in our life. And it's so amazing because I know other areas of life, there is a sense of drifting. It happens at times to the best of us. But we don't aim for that. In fact, we're pretty concerned really hard by pushing this in other areas of life. You better pay attention in school. You better pay attention while you're driving. You better pay attention to your job. You better pay attention when you go to the doctor. You better pay attention to the ball. You better pay attention because we feel and we understand paying attention pays dividends. It makes a difference. And yet it seems so reticent, so easily acceptable that if something has to be cut, if something can allow drifting, it's certainly Jesus. And I say that with such gusto because, man, I've seen that in my life. This is not me throwing stones. This is me dropping truth bombs right up here on me. It happens so easily. And so here the author of Hebrews, I don't want to spend time with just my experience. What does the author of Hebrews, what does the Bible say about this? It tells us to have a contemplation of drift. It is okay to contemplate what could happen. If we don't fix our eyes on Jesus. The contemplation of this drift, it it presents to us the real potential. If it wasn't a real potential, if it wasn't a possibility, guess what? The author of Hebrews would never have to address this. We would never have to worry about it. People would come to Jesus and they'd never drift away. We wouldn't have to worry about it in our own life. We wouldn't have to worry about it in the life of others. But because there's potential... We have to present the warning. We have to exhort people to watch that this is a real potential. It's also something that requires a real perception. For this reason, we must pay attention. What is that reason? Because Jesus is worth more than anything for us to pay attention to. 
If He isn't, who is? It'd be easy for me to say, well, me. Because that's what I focus on most of the time. It'd be easy for you to say, well, me. Well, you. That's the easiest thing for us to point to. It's about me. But the, perce- the perception is, for this reason, because of everything that has been said, because Jesus is who He says He is, it requires perception to figure out, when I am examining, evaluating Jesus, wow, He's worth more. He is worth all of this. And if anything needs to be fixed in my life, it's not who Jesus is. It's my perception of who Jesus is. Because if we don't, there's a problem. Drifting always leads to some form of punishment. It may be what we consider minute in the, in the grand scheme of things, but it's something. Years ago, I lived in Arizona, and every summer we would take our students to California uh, for our Arizona camp that met in, in California. I know it's weird, but that's where we met. And we'd take these students, and then on one day out of the, out of the week that we were there, we would go to the beach to one of the lovely beaches in California. And I will tell you that the Pacific Ocean is so stinking cold, it's it's not even funny. Uh, your boy had to wear a wetsuit because I am used to like bathtub level water, like temperature. That's what it is in Mississippi. It bakes and cooks and it's humid and that's just what it is. But there, it's it's cold. But it's not only cold, it has a strong current. And you get out there and you're flopping around, you're doing your thing, and it doesn't take long before the next thing you know you're looking and you're like, wow, that pier... It's a lot farther off than it was. And you're looking back at the beach and you're saying, um, I don't see my people. So you fight against the current, you make your way in, and then you see this long haul that you've got to make because you weren't aware of it, but in the middle of the current, it made you drift. And so your punishment is now you've got to walk back to your people. Now that's a minute, minute in the scope of things. You and I are well aware that sometimes when we allow things to drift so far that you're like, oh no. The stuff has hit the fan. I have now really stepped in it. I let my finances just drift, case sera, sera, and now, uh-oh, people are calling. I let my marriage just go, case sera, sera, now people are wanting to leave. I let my kids do whatever they want, and now, case sera, sera, the drift, you get it. You catch the drift. There's punishment. There's consequences. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, if what was given by the angels, when he's talking about the law, the Bible presents this case that, that, that God's gift of the law came by the angels taking what God had spoken and delivering it to the people. They have this view, Deuteronomy chapter 33, that that's where the law came from, that these mediators gave. And if it was held to account what angels gave to our hands, how much more will be held to account what Jesus the far superior one has given to us. See, sometimes we have this weak view of Jesus saying, oh, what's Jesus going to do? What's He going to do? Jesus will certainly, by His grace, completely save us and prepare a place fixed for us that will never be stripped away from His hand. But that does not mean Jesus does not allow consequences to come upon His people in His hand. You don't believe me? Read the book of Acts. You don't remain me? Believe me? Read what Jesus spoke to some of his disciples in the book of in the Gospels. 
Jesus perfectly makes us righteous and has that, that position. But He will not remove the real peril that can be brought. But there is, thankfully, a perfect plea for the one that has been caught drifting and for the one that has not found peace with God. There is a real plea and that is placing our lives being awakened and saying, for this reason, I see Jesus is worth following and I fall into His hand to say, God, let Your will be done to me. I ask You to save me, but let Your will be done. And there in that lies a perfect real plea. The only plea. The only plea is to say, God, you're the judge and you know I'm guilty. But you're also the Savior. And my plea is your righteousness. We need to have this contemplation in our life. And we need to see what is necessary as we follow the Lord. Dr. Albert Moeller, professor at one of our seminaries, he talks about this area of combating drift. How do we do that as believers? How do we do that as a church? How do we do that as disciples? And he says, orthodoxy, knowledge of the theological truth, and obedience are the oars we must use for fighting against the strong current of spiritual drift. Theology and practice will keep us sailing forward in fidelity or faithfulness. And we avoid spiritual drift by dropping the anchor of our souls into the deep waters of the Word of God. Because we see in it, there is a strong Savior. There is a strong Jesus, and we're paying attention to Jesus. So if we're paying attention to Jesus, we're going to pay attention to what Jesus does, who He is, and what He says. We must have this contemplation of drift. We must also have this examination of deliverance. He says, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Man, that is a really potentially powerful statement. If we don't look at it in just the pleasantness of how the words are put there. A great salvation. How do we examine what Jesus has done for this this great salvation? How many of you consider your salvation great? And why is it great? Once again, there's that, that big question with three little letters. Why? Why is it great? What is great about salvation? Well, the Bible paints the picture of salvation, of Jesus saving us in four specific ways. Four specific ways. One is our justification. That He makes us who were not righteous, His righteousness. He justifies what we are. He doesn't say it's okay. He takes His righteousness and places it on us because our righteousness won't cut it. That's a part of salvation. That He would be willing out of His grace to do that. To say, I take what is mine, what is rightfully mine, and I lovingly give it to you. Because there was no plea in you other than guilty. And then there's not only justification, there's regeneration. Where He says, what you have before was not only unrighteous, it was dead. It was not living. It was broken. And I regenerate you. See, salvation is not only justification where God says, I give you my righteousness, but it's regeneration where He says, I breathe new life into you. You are born again. And it's essential because if there's no new creation, guess what? There's no salvation. You're still dead in your trespasses unless Jesus has birthed new life into you. There's not only regeneration, there's sanctification 
that God says, I make you positionally righteous, but I also don't leave you. I work with you and never leave you so that your life begins to take this positional righteousness that you have because of your faith in me, because of my salvation in you, and I begin making it apparent by your practical righteousness. That is not something you can do of your own willpower. Why? Because if you try to do it on your own willpower, it's just a mask. It's not real salvation. It's just trying to work so people think better of you. But if it's a work of Jesus, it's something that starts within and it moves without. As God's Word goes in, His life comes out. It's a great salvation because of glorification. That's the part we love the most. In fact, sometimes we just jump to that. We get to go to Him in glory. And that's great. It is something to celebrate. It is something to shout hallelujah about. But it's not the only part. The only part of salvation is just not going to hell and going to heaven. It's all these aspects. But yet that promise that God says, I will keep you for eternity, not just for this life alone. When we look and we say, that's a great salvation. That's a great salvation. And yet, the potential is still there to neglect it. And this salvation wasn't just someone's idea that said, what are some areas of life that we need to think about that maybe God could save? And let's try to put those ideas in this book to really spin a tale for people. That was not how the Bible came to be to reveal this salvation. Because there's not only a great salvation, there's a great confirmation. It says it was confirmed to us. Because first of all, It was spoken by the Messiah. The Lord spoke it. And if we believe He is who He says He is, we'll listen to what He says. It was shared by the messengers, the church. It was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. The church is this role of being messengers that pass on what they have received freely. And it was also settled by the majestic that the Lord Himself testified by these various signs and wonders and miracles and distribution of His gifts to the Holy Spirit. And all this is according to His will. So all of this salvation that we speak of, it wasn't just some kind of grand philosophy or idea. No, God said, I'm cementing this imprint in. So that when you look at it, you can say, wow, my attention is drawn to this. I do not have a weak faith because I do not have a weak Jesus. I may have a weak faith because I have a perception of a weak Jesus. But the Jesus that the Bible presents is not weak. I must pay attention to what He has given this great salvation, to this great confirmation, to this great evaluation. Think about it. All of this, looking at it, think about the cost that was required for Jesus to make this known. When we evaluate this salvation... I hope you come to a view that it is not cheap grace. That this forgiveness that came by Jesus, it was costly. He shed His blood. I hope you see the completion in it. That that what Jesus has done is that justification, is that new life, that that sanctification, is that, that destiny, that everything that Jesus has done is absolutely adequate and complete. I hope you see the circumference of it. How it's meant to surround every detail of your life. That everything is held within who Jesus is. I hope you see the change from it. That is yielded from 
your life. And that's a way for you to say, am I having a weak perception of Jesus? Has my life been overcome by drift? Go and say, what have I been looking at when I think about the cost Jesus paid? Uh, Is it complete in me? Is it surrounding me? Is it permeating through me? And then go to the Lord in prayer and say, God, help me deal with it. Lastly, I want you to see the concentration of the divine. Once again, he talks about Jesus and his humanity, what Jesus did in lowering himself. He didn't lower his divinity, but he did lower himself into humanity for a short time. I love how it says, but somewhere, someone somewhere has testified. This was the way the Hebrews said, this is written. This, you know this. You've heard this. This is solid. This is not some abstract idea. This comes from Psalm 8, by the way. A beautiful, beautiful psalm. And he says, What is man that you remember him, and the son of man that you care for him? He begins quoting this area because he wants the readers, he wants the listeners to have their concentration once again. If, if they see that there's a potential for drift, and then they evaluate and examine their life and say, all right, I can see where I was once here and now I'm here. All right, it's it's a possibility and probably happened to me. Then he says, here is the plea once again. Go back to Jesus and concentrate on Him. And go back to Him not in a way that says, I am defeated, I'm a terrible person, I'm awful, and we begin piling on this misery pity party, but we go to Jesus and say, God, I still am so in awe of what You have done for me. And I want to celebrate Your grace that You still draw me to you. And that all of this was a part of your perfect plan. Not my drift, but all of this grace, all of this riches, all this kindness, it is a part of your perfect grace to me. You see, Jesus going and coming to earth was a part of God's purpose. It's, it's, it's in the knowledge that all of this was going to happen from the very beginning. He loved us from the foundation of the world. God never had to learn anything. All of this was a part of His perfect plan. This great grace that we talk about. This great Savior that we speak of. All of it. Every detail of your life. None of it ever caught God off guard. God never said, "Uh uh-oh, now what am I going to do? His purpose was revealed. That He was going to do this all along. That He was going to send Himself all along. And you know what else didn't catch Him off guard? The cutting. The tearing of His flesh. The, the, the pain and agony of the cross. I used the illustration of the knife. But one of, uh, a devastating weapon that, that pierces deep within. That didn't catch Jesus off guard. From the very time that He breathed His first breath after leaving His mother's womb. The Eternal One breathing in human air. It was already fixed that one day He would face the most cruelest and devastating of executions. And God had His purpose in it. That the cause of His suffering He would make the source of everyone's salvation perfect through it. Perfect through that. 
And so now we see God's purpose in the knowledge that all of this was a part of His plan, even the death and execution. But it points us back to there is a night. There is a knight in shining armor that is for His people, that is the Deliverer. He is the one that He wants us to fix our eyes because He is in every detail better. His salvation, better. His strength, better. His Gospel, better. There is no weakness in Jesus. But there is a part where we as His people must sometimes say, God, I must make a plea. I've neglected a great salvation. My attention has drifted. Draw me back to You. And let me rest in the fullness and awesomeness of Your grace. And what does God do? He draws His people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today, as we come to the conclusion of this time in Your Word, I pray that You will help us respond in the way that You want us to respond. In the way that is appropriate for us to respond. You see, I know what it would be like. I know how easy it is to say, well, God, I hope you really prick so-and-so's heart. I really hope you do this for the rest of the people that are here and yet not be captivated and caught where we need to be with you right now. Or just to kind of pretend it's not something that needs to impact us in this moment. So Jesus, in this moment of of response, I pray that you would move in a mighty way for every single soul in here that needs to get on their knees and make their plea to a perfect saving Savior. Whether they have, it's a first step of salvation, God help them do it. Or whether it's a, God I'm guilty of drift, draw me back to you, help our church do that. Do it Lord. Have your way. Help us see that You are better. And if we're not enthralled with that, if we're not living for that, something is adrift. Draw us back. In Jesus' name, Amen.